From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode is Mike Huck from Irrigation and Turf Services based in Southern California. Mike was a longtime USGA agronomist, golf course superintendent, and recipient of the 2019 USGA Green Section Award. Mike, the California water guy, has served on several golf water task forces in Los Angeles, San Diego, and the Coachella Valley in the wake of water restrictions imposed on golf courses during periods of extreme drought. He collaborated with the Southern California Golf Association to study the feasibility of creating on-site, non-potable water sources that could be used on large landscape environments. It's safe to say, if it has to do with water, Mike has something to say about it. Getting the most out of your water use often requires applications of products that enhance water penetration and improve and protect plant roots. These types of applications require precision in timing, rate, and location, and that's where frost ink spray technology products come in. Frost has the latest technology available for GPS-guided applications, drone applications, and autonomous applications. Our partners at Frost are about making your spray day a better day. Visit them at frostserve.com. That's frost, S-E-R-V.com. All right, Mike, welcome back to Frankly Speaking, pal. This isn't the first time we've done this. So we'll no, want to. <laughs> so we'll want to do a little uh, setup. Uh, I looked back to when we chatted last, and it was 2018. So it's been quite a while. I don't think the water situation is getting any better in California. But let's talk about you know where are we now? Why are we here? As far as how much rain have we not gotten in Southern California? What is the extent? of the drought out where you are? Well, looking at it on a statewide basis, Frank, it's a combination of factors, lack of rainfall across the state, lack of snowpack in the northern part of the state, lack of snowpack on the Colorado River system, because we basically draw our water from three areas. That's the local supply, whatever falls locally and ends up in groundwater or local reservoirs. The State Water Project and the uh, Bureau of Reclamation, the feds, have some water projects in California up in northern part of the state like Shasta and some of the other big reservoirs up there that we draw a portion of water from. And then we've got the Colorado River access that we have in Southern California also. And it breaks down roughly to about, on a global scale, 30% from each, you know, a third from each one of those supplies. Okay. As you get into local areas, it changes, though. And we have some areas that are more reliant on state water than they are Colorado River water and vice versa. We have some areas that are more sufficient as far as their own groundwater table and things like that, that they may have 60% of their supply of groundwater and 40% is imported water. So okay. classify the state water and the Colorado River water as imported water and how that breaks down depends on your location and how the pipelines and canals are configured to get that water to you. Okay, so here's the question I got. So so with that as a backdrop, you set it up perfect, pal. We're going to be done with this podcast in 10 minutes. You keep <laughs> answering the questions that good. So I know you live in California, but yep. I get to travel to Arizona, a little bit to Nevada, uh, a little bit to Colorado, and this isn't a California problem. So it goes across no. the multiple states that have the various sources. But here's where I want to start. This thing is so complicated. How could one golf course 
in one area in California pay $150,000 for 200 million gallons of water. And a golf course in Arizona is paying $1.2 million for almost the same kind of water. Let's start with the disparity among states in their access to water in the West. Yeah, that's a good one, Frank. I always tell people water is exactly like politics. It's local. All politics are local and all water and distribution comes down to local access and things like that. Let me just give you two examples that are very easy to grasp onto. We've got the Palm Springs, Coachella Valley area where their water is half the cost or less than what it is over on the coast. Yet we use half the water over on the coast than what they might in the desert due to our ET, things like that. Mm -hmm. So this comes down to how far that water has to be transported, how many pumps it goes through, what the energy cost is, treatment to get it up over the Tehachapi Mountains into L.A., uh, the state water system, versus a system that comes across from the Colorado River that maybe has a longer run of gravity feed to it than what the uh, other systems have. And it, it gets really complicated. It's based on distance. It's based on the contract with whoever's providing the water, what the initial costs are from the state or from the feds, and then, you know, what it takes to get it to the end user and yeah. treatment on, on there, too, if it's potable water. That's right. Okay, so listen. So it's hard to know how much water is going to cost without knowing some of the local stuff. Now, there's also a big disparity in the way industries use it. And in preparation for this fine podcast, Mike, I rewatched Chinatown, a movie <laughs> that most people who are listening to this have never heard of because they're much younger than you and me. Yes. But back in the <laughs> 70s, before Jack Nicholson was Jack Nicholson, really, or he had been a little bit, him and Faye yep. Dunaway made a movie called Chinatown that really was about the water wars that were going on at the time as industries and municipalities and corrupt individuals were manipulating <laughs> for water rights. Yeah. Are we heading for a similar sort of situation, pitting industries and municipalities against each other with these local issues? Uh, I would say, yeah, there's going to be some of that, maybe not to the extent of what was going on back then, but I just read an article before you called me this morning opinion article from a fellow up in the Sacramento area. It was published in my local paper. And he was saying that there's a proposed change to how we handle water rights in the state because the old water rights, uh, first in time, first in right, uh, Western water law that have been in place for so long are, you know, the, the agriculture holds the key to most of that water. And, you know, now is, do we shift some of that to urban areas and also maybe tribal areas that got shortchanged in the early distribution or, or dividing up of water sources. There's discussion of that going on now. There's also discussion of potentially putting water on the free market mm. and so that, you know, the highest use would prevail and pay the cost for it. To some extent, you know, that makes me nervous from the standpoint, well, California is a huge agricultural area. We produce, I forget what the percentage is of the winter table vegetables that are filled It's some ridiculous amount, like 80%. Yeah, it's like 50% or yeah. something. Yeah. And if we take that water away from them, you know, and, and this, this kind of bleeds over into Arizona, too. They grow a lot of fresh vegetables uh, over in the Yuma area and that because they're, they're side by side. You know, where is this all going to come from? Are we going to import that from China now, too? Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the answers are going to be. 
I would hope that these people are thinking farther ahead than just keep building and building and building in urban areas and stealing water from mm-hmm. agriculture. Granted, there's probably some efficiency that could be put in place and funded, you know, more drip irrigation, things like that. But at some point, you kind of reach an end where, particularly with poor quality water and saline water coming out of the uh, Colorado River, you've got to have a leaching fraction with it. And drip irrigation creates a whole new management challenge as far as managing the salts and things like that accumulating in the soil. So it's a conundrum. No doubt. And I guess to turn it towards the golf business a little bit, You know, I hear about management plans and conservation plans and management zones that golf industries in Arizona, Nevada, California might have to implement. And they're talking about, you know, what about overseeding and and how is this going to be? How much water do they need and how do they negotiate for it and pay for it? But what happens, Mike, when the person with their hand on the knob at the Colorado River says, I don't care. Everybody's getting twenty five percent less. Figure it out. What happens well, when that when that happens and there's no negotiating for this water because you're finding dead bodies in the bottom of these lakes? That's, now. <laughs> that's already happening to some extent. The first tier of conservation on the Colorado River has hit, and if it goes into tier two by January twenty third, and and that's if we go below elevation of 1,050 feet above sea level at Lake Mead, Mm -hmm. Arizona, Nevada take bigger cuts. Mexico takes its first cut. It has to go one more tier or two more tiers before California takes its first cut because California is senior water rates holder. And you think that that anachronism of first uh, in time, first in right is going to withstand this? Well, that's the question right now. And that's one of the things, like I say, they're looking at internally within California, within the state water system that I just discussed a few minutes ago. They're looking at, should we buy water from agriculture and basically put them out of business? I I don't know if they just park land temporarily and pray for more snow and rain in the future, or if this would just literally buy farms out. I'm not sure how in-depth they want to go with that, but we're also seeing voluntary on the Colorado River system. I know that they've had meetings and there's some voluntary holdbacks of water in Lake Powell and in Lake Mead because they're concerned about power generation. Both of those dams are huge electrical generation plants. Wow. Hydropower. Okay, so listen, let's move to another way they get water for a second. Obviously, when you start pumping groundwater at the rate they're pumping it, you get a fair amount of what I think is technically called subsidence. Let's revisit that for a second. Can you talk a little bit about the way groundwater is used out west? Yeah, it's the wild, wild west, uh, (laughs) or it was, at least until the last drought. Arizona was probably the first to start to manage your groundwater back in the 80s. That's when you started to see the golf courses go to quote-unquote target-style designs because they were putting uh, restrictions and limitations on how many irrigated acres you could have of turf per golf course and things like that. Las Vegas area does not have a tremendous amount of groundwater, but they do have some groundwater. Some of it, the quality is marginal to my understanding. I'm not as familiar with their groundwater situation, but they kind of did a similar thing where they limited the amount of turf acreage on their golf courses to average, I believe, five acres per hole initially and uh, 10 acres for a practice facilities, and now that's getting lowered yet. Uh, Some of the municipalities over there have lowered it so low that you could barely build nine holes if you wanted to and have a playable golf course, and that's just their way of 
putting an ordinance in effect that inhibits golf development. Uh, California, you would think, is typically the leader in these things. We haven't done nearly that. We've got a what they call the Model Efficient Landscape Water Ordinance. It doesn't cover golf specifically at the moment, although the golf industry back during the last drought and after we came out of that, we have proposed a chapter for golf that would basically limit our acreage much like to the same extent that Arizona and Nevada have done for all new construction and reconstruction. And we've written a set of guidelines that we had a group of superintendents comment on and review and architects looked at it and we just tried to make something reasonable because we know the day of reckoning's coming. Well, we cannot go on irrigating 120 acres and have a big green park in this environment. That's the point I was hoping to get to before the break here. Let's uh, go to a break in a minute, but let me ask you this. Because it's like politics, because it's very local, because golf is a unique landscape, I know you've done this and I know other superintendents have done this, but would you basically make it a requirement of most superintendents to sit around at their local water committee meetings? <laughs> I mean, is this something, if this is going to happen properly with helping communities make informed decisions, that golf superintendents have to show up at these meetings routinely? Yes. Particularly, you need to know your water conservation managers and the people who are making these decisions on cuts that are going to be made and things like that. And, and if nothing else, even do it in good times to educate them. Their misunderstanding, Frank, is typically you use so much water. Well, they don't apply it per acre irrigated, or at least they hadn't in the past. And I had to bring this up at a meeting one time and said, well, you use so much water in golf. Well, if you look at it on a per square foot basis compared to residential, we're probably 50 to 60% or maybe 70% at the highest of what these homeowners are using per square foot. And you look at the number of lawns in your region or area, it, it's huge compared to golf courses. And so the excess water use at the residential level is by far greater than what a golf course does. And kind of the light went on and, you know, they started thinking about it. And mm -hmm. that's how we got our foot in the door with saying, look, we're more than willing to establish. Uh, they call it the MAWA in California, maximum allowable water allocation. Set us a budget and we will live within those guidelines. And it's up to each individual course to meet those guidelines or make adjustments or, you know, come back to you and say, look, we've got something unique about our property, whether we're in a very windy canyon or something that uh, RET is actually higher than maybe the local Simmons station down the freeway a bit says things like that. All right, Mike, listen, let's take a break. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm talking with my old pal, former USGA agronomist, superintendent, 2019 recipient of the USGA Green Section Award, Mike Huck. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Getting the most out of your water means getting it in and down into the soil profile. The inability to move water and products such as fertilizers and pesticides to the depths of the root zone is a critical concern for golf course superintendents. Dryject Sand Injection Services increases infiltration and allows for deeper rooting and better drainage by top dressing, aerating, and amending in one pass. Contact your local Dryject Service representative or visit dryject.com.
We've had this conversation about superintendents stepping up and helping to put some numbers, how much water they're using, you know, how to push back on that. Wow, you're using a lot of water. But how much do you think eventually when it comes, it's going to impact what we're seeing a golf course look like today? So when I talk to people, particularly in the overseeding environments, you know, one of the big misconceptions there is, well, you don't have to water if the Bermuda is dormant or if you painted it. And you and I know that's not true. You, you don't use no water. You right. still have to use some water. So there's the first part of will we see a substantial change when the water gets tighter in the next several years, as you say, they can see it coming. Are we going to see less acreage overseeded? Are we going to see an abandonment completely of overseeding like the Southeast did? Uh, what do you imagine is going to be some of the initial adaptations where the entire golfing community is basically built around an overseeded golf course? Well, I think it's going to vary by region again. Again, going back to the all politics is local, all water is local. Again, I'll use the uh, Coachella Valley, which is, you know, a snowbird residence, so to speak. They yeah. fly in for the winter and they fly out when starts getting above uh, 90 degrees, and they have a whole different perspective as owners of golf courses at private clubs down there and resorts on what they want to see uh, back in the last drought. Now, this could change depending how serious this gets, but back during the last drought, we're having these meetings with superintendents down there, and, and one superintendent said, i got to be honest, my committee comes to me and says, look, if we wanted to look like Tucson or Phoenix or Vegas, we would have moved there instead of Palm Springs. We want to see wall to wall green. Well, you know, how realistic is that as we move forward? It, it just depends. But they are a unique situation down there. They, have a, they sit on top of a large aquifer. They manage their groundwater. They've been managing it even before the state uh, required filing all the reports and things that came into effect back around, what, 2015, I want to say, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act in California went into effect five or six years ago, and they were actually, you know, steps ahead of these types of things. So it's going to be different there than it is, say, in Los Angeles or the Central Valley or Sacramento area or, you know, wherever it might be, the Bay Area. Right. Okay. So let's stay on the overseeding thing for a second, because in addition to, you know, what the people are demanding, we set up golf as a model for real estate. I mean, a lot yes. of these people tie the value of that house they bought on PGA West or the value of the house they bought at a particular place in Nevada or a particular place in Arizona yep. where they overseed. That's going to have ripple effects into the real estate market, right? If, if I wanted to go live brown grass, I would have. Um, <laughs> there's a pretty big ripple effect here. Is that calculated when these discussions are going on, that it's not just a recreational amenity, but it is intimately linked to the value and therefore the tax base of this particular community? Absolutely. I'm sure that's part of the thought train that doesn't get discussed out loud all the time. But I remember talking to one superintendent down the desert who said, you know, we will lay sod right up to the wall between the golf course and the homes, particularly by the models. And then we may uh, or may not have that sod going all the way up next to houses out in other areas that are being sold. But, you know, there's a little sleight of hand. Going on yeah, there. yeah, 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 for sure. But, you know, as far as the painting, and I think it could change radically. You see Riverside, Jim Barrett out there, yeah. Dr. Barrett. Yeah. 
they've been doing a breeding program. They've got some Bermuda grasses that have held green color mm-hmm. through the winter in Riverside, and it's no Riverside is not warm in the winter time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get some pretty good hard frost. How that will translate out in the desert probably remains to be seen. I'm sure he's got some. He's probably working on some plots out there or planning to. I've never really talked specifically to Jim about that, but, you know, if we got a grass that held its color, say in a similar fashion that Kikuyu grass holds its color in the winter on the coast, mm-hmm. we can just paint it and keep it nudging along. And the, the problem may end up being those areas that get divided badly. Right. You know, par three tees, the short little par four that everybody hits a right. short iron around the dog leg or whatever right. it might be, and, you know, and they just take a chunk of divots all the time, will those hold up through the winter? Yeah, that's the issue. Just because it's green doesn't mean it's growing. Exactly. Yeah, and and, and so you're not going to have, that's the dilemma that they face is that they get the traffic tolerance with the cool season grasses when they're overseeded. So, yeah, yep. this is a okay, let's let's go to the northern parts. Let's go to the arid areas. Even a state like Colorado is going to be impacted by this. I would imagine oh, Utah yeah, is going to be impacted by this. I mean, when you think about the amount of golf in arid areas that are completely dependent on water. First off, let's start with the simple stuff. Do you think more golf courses in areas where warm season grasses can grow will start to put them in because of the water savings they'll realize in the summer, even as far north as Colorado? I don't know about Colorado, but I know Northern California, we're seeing a lot of people shift and uh, experiment with zoysias and Santa Ana, Bermuda, and uh, other warm season varieties that tend to hold their color in that climate up there, which would never have been discussed, you know, 20 years ago. Could it? Yeah. I mean, I've actually seen kind of novelty thing, patches of Bermuda grass up in Aurora, Colorado, mm-hmm. uh, on some municipal courses up there at the city of Aurora had when I was with the USGA. I've seen, of all places, up in Yosemite, there's a little nine-hole golf course at the Wawona Resort, had a patch of Bermuda grass on its tee. So, I mean, there there's potential there. All right, so grasses are going to be tough. So that's going to leave the question come up about allotment. Right. So let's stay up in Sacramento, for example. That's a a good example. They have so many acres of grass and they're going to be allotted so much water for that. Do you see over time it being really just watered down the middle that you're going to have uh, dust uh, on the side and essentially just a T-top, a fairway and greens and surrounds? Or do we you think we're going to just build things smaller? What are those adaptations about the way we use water? Well, I think we're going to all start looking more like a Las Vegas or a Tucson or Phoenix golf course mm-hmm. in California. We're going to place less emphasis out in that rough area and maybe use more native materials that don't require, I won't say don't require any water, but don't require as much water as a conventional turf. I think we just have to change that way. I don't see how we can justify our existence when we can get away with maybe, you know, 60 to 90 acres of turf. How can we justify watering 100 plus? Well, that's the question, right? Justifying turf and programs to remove turf. Now, this has gotten very popular uh, for lawn removal throughout a number of states out west now. And I think to your comment, it speaks to the fact that, you know, lawns are, you know, have a lot of ornamental value, obviously some cooling and dust and other value, but it's likely there to keep them green during periods of time, unless we're willing to put up with a half green, half gold lawn, 
you know, getting the lawns out and paying people to do it's going to be good. Do you see this to be a continued thing in other areas, not just lawn removal, but turf removal off of golf courses being subsidized? I do. In fact, I've read about a couple, and I can't remember the locations where I want to say one of them might have been back up in Las Vegas again. I think that they're paying up at $3 a square foot at some of these places. Yeah. That's a chunk of change. <laughs> so so you think golf courses are going to continue to take up these things? If they can get by with 90, I can sell 30 acres at three bucks a thousand square foot. You don't think they're going to, you think they're going to do it, don't you? It's $3 per square foot, not three bucks per thousand square feet. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Now, a lot of those are targeted now and they limit you on how many square feet you can remove under those higher prices. So it might be $3 for your first 500 square feet and then everything after that's a buck or something like that. Every, again, politics is local, water's local, and these rebates are local. In a lot of cases, they vary from location to location. But I do believe we're going to see this. And if no other reason, Frank, the cost of irrigating, when we're looking at potable water costs of 2,000 plus an acre foot, you get up in the Bay Area, some of those guys, I think they pay four to five grand for an acre foot of water up there if it's potable water. Okay, let's put this in perspective for people that are listening that aren't familiar with acre foot. Let's put it into gallons, right? I mean, I think generally in the desert, you're looking at what, between 200 and 300 million gallons a year to keep an average golf course plugging along? Yes? Oh, see, I only think an acre feet. I got to do some math here. All right. Well, we'll we'll take a commercial break. It's it's not that hard of math. It's basically three acre feet is a million gallons, roughly. Okay. 326,000 in round numbers, gallons per acre foot. So I just say a million gallons is about three acre feet for, you know, quick conversion. So. We use in the L.A. Basin anywhere between probably 225 to 450, you know, as you go inland, acre feet for a 100-acre golf course. So you're at 2.5 to 4.5 acre feet per acre. That's how we discuss it in this part of the world. Less than a million gallons per acre up to a little over a million gallons, and you know, 1.3 something like that okay. 1.5 million gallons well and you and you and i know listen mike there are some people who money doesn't matter it's access that's going to get limited but there are a lot of golf courses out there that you know have become reliant on their local water access that's relatively inexpensive that it's going to be tough for them to continue if yes. prices continue to go up so let's take another little sideline here to are we as good at water conservation as we could be? I know you've spent a latter part of your career improving irrigation, uniformity, and efficiency. You know, use the water you got better. What kind of a grade would you give the uh, irrigators in your neck of the woods with how well they're using their systems to conserve water and get the most out of every drop? Oh, boy. Again, it's local, and it's all based upon your soil type. If you've got heavy clay soils like we've got on the coast, those guys are A+. Because our clay soils here on the coast are more suitable for pottery than they are for growing grass. (laughs) And if you water them to the proper amount and then spit on top of them, you get a puddle pretty much. You know, I mean, they just, they hold a lot of water. They don't drain very quickly. Now you go out to the desert again, and you can easily overwater by 100% and never know it. Hmm. And that's where we see some challenges Hmm. because the soils accept water so readily 
you'll drive around out there and you'll hear the slosh off the tires at 8, 9 in the morning by noon. It's like you're driving down the freeway yeah. again and you don't hear any indication of overwatering. That blow stand down the gut of the valley mm-hmm. just takes water. That's where they need to be more careful. Mm. We've also got 40 and plus year old irrigation systems in that area because every year you just bump up another percent or two the watering factor to cover up the inefficiency from, you know, age of the year before. Mm. And that's the other challenge down there. You don't see a deteriorating irrigation system in those soils like you would over on the heavy clays. Uh, Okay, so listen, is bad water our solution? Is our ability to irrigate with poor quality water going to give us more access to water, or is that going to experience the same kind of limitations that potable water is going to experience? Yeah, uh, you're going to experience the same kind of limitations, Frank, because right now the big push in recycled water, which we haven't even touched on, is what they call IPR and DPR, indirect potable reuse and direct potable reuse. And we're going to see more and more of that in these arid areas. And, you know, we saw a lot of it come on real quick, like even down in Texas a few years back when they were going through a drought that there was one little community down there put in a direct portable reuse plant uh, overnight practically Hmm. because they were so short of water. And and we're looking at that in California. That's going to be a big use for recycled water. I don't think it's going to, at least immediately, affect courses that are already on purple pipe systems. But it's going to preclude any course from converting in the near future. Can you take a minute before we move on with IPR and DPR? Can you explain what those ways of uh, potable reuse mean? IPR is indirect potable reuse. And what that means is they run the, the water through advanced treatment, and then they blend it into a reservoir that's also receiving typically surface water, mm-hmm. be Colorado River water or state water project water, and they blend the two of them together. DPR is direct potable reuse, where they run it through very advanced treatment, RO membranes, charcoal filtration, and it goes right into the water system and comes out your tap. That sounds a little scary. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they claim that the membranes will remove all the bacteria and virus and everything else. I mean, they I'm sure that they watch over it very closely and everything, but yeah, it does sound very scary. So what precludes more places from popping these up like Texas did? Is this a like uh, the fracking answer to uh, the water supply that fracking was to the oil supply? It's politics and people's acceptance of it, the yuck factor, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the one thing you get over. But when, when your only option is that over no water, uh, people start accepting it a little bit better. The, the other IPR method is groundwater recharge, which they've been doing here in Orange County for, I would say, probably 30 or more years. We started it with the title of seawater barrier intrusion or intrusion barrier in our groundwater that comes up near the coast because as you overdraft coastal groundwater that's of good quality, the seawater starts pushing back in farther. So they were injecting this at what they call the barrier, the line where the two meet, Mm -hmm. and they were using it to hold back the seawater. Well, in essence, they were also having some of that bleed back into the drinking water. So, you know, there's no around it. It's been, it's been going on here for years, and they do that through recharge basins and sometimes direct well injection even. All right, so listen, lousy water, and now I'm going to be restricted. 
Am I going to have bigger problems because I don't get my proper leaching factor? I mean, when I think about poor quality water as an Easterner, Mike, and reading your stuff and Ollie's stuff and all the stuff that's been written over the years, you know, you have to have that leaching fraction, certainly on your sand-based playing surfaces, your putting greens, things like that. That's obviously an X amount of water over and above what the plant needs just to keep the soil functioning. Are these things going to be factored in when and if uh, poor water is restricted like potable water is? Yeah, it, it could have an effect if you're already on poor water. Now, the thing is, if you're on a potable water system that goes into one of these systems where they're going to either do reverse osmosis and improve some nasty groundwater and put it into the drinking water system and or maybe indirect or direct portable reuse of recycled water because you were outside the uh, distance that Purple Pipe made sense, you're just going to see your water cost escalate. You're going to have decent quality water, but you're going to see the water cost going up and up and up because of all this additional treatment involved to create this additional water source. Mike, it is uh, both alarming and enjoyable to chat with you because I feel like I'm getting the whole perspective and it scares the hell out of me. I'm so glad that you've kept on in semi-retirement tweeting out the water stuff. It is something, even in areas like where I live, where, uh, you know, we get plentiful rainfall. Our our problems sometimes too much water and then periods of time with no water, our our plants and ecology aren't well adapted to it. I I think that's the thing that concerns me when I talk to you about that. And now I promise I'm going to get you out of here on this. Are you confident we're preserving enough water for the natural systems out there to function? Or are we starting to nib into what nature needs to do its stuff? Well, that's one of the big arguments on groundwater recharge, and that was a big driver for the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And they're also looking at what can we do during wet seasons to, can we flood fields and allow more recharge to happen through, say, uh, dormant orchards and things like that. There's been, the University of California has been doing some experimentation on that, so they you know, there's worry about do you drown the crops, basically, root rot and things like that. If you do this during the winter months, and can they get away with that up in the almond orchards and things where they've got appropriate soils that they know are connected to groundwater basins. So we're looking at all those different options and, you know, where it's all going to lead only, you know, heaven knows right now. Mm. But to go back on what you said about you worry about out in your neck of the woods out in the East Coast, mm-hmm. One of the things I had a conversation many years ago with superintendent down, I think he was in the Carolinas, if I remember correctly. And he said, you know, the difference between you guys and us, he says, when we go into a drought, we've got maybe one season's worth of water, if we're lucky. We're usually relying on rainfall to refill that reservoir constantly. Mm -hmm. He goes, you guys out west, you've got multiple years worth of, of reservoir storage out there. And that's the other thing I see as being a potential problem in the east coast if you go through a drought, is you just don't have the reserves that we normally had in the past when we were getting enough rain and snow to, to recharge these things on a regular basis, uh, that you will see these challenges surface much quicker than we would have uh, in the past. But we've just been going in, you know, we're in what many people classify as a mega drought on the uh, Colorado system. And I would say that it's probably affecting California's statewide system, too, 
And what's really frightening there is, you know, you look back on some of the historical tree ring data and that that mm-hmm. you see published every once in a while. These things last hundreds of years, <laughs> and we're only 25, 30 years into this one, at least from what I've read. We don't know how long it'll last, but it, it's certainly a frightening potential moving forward. I'm sorry I asked that last question. I was hoping to feel good on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, thanks so much for taking the time. Mike Cuck, Irrigation Turf Services in Southern California. Good old Wisconsin boy and a 2019 recipient of the USGA Green Section Award. Mike, thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome, Frank. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Golf course water management typically includes the use of wetting agents. And when you want simple, no-nonsense solutions, that's where the plant food company comes in with an array of innovative wetting agents and soil penetrants. These products are tested in university trials and are backed by the pros at the plant food company. Learn more at plantfoodco.com. Big thanks to Mike Huck from Irrigation and Turf Services in Southern California. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at DryJack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability. And Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.